Welcome to another episode of the Autism Annex podcast, the monthly show that brings you insights and real-world expertise from the worlds of autism and special education. I'm your host, John Andrew Slominski. If you've been on Netflix lately, you may have noticed a new hit show called Love on the Spectrum, which follows real adults with autism as they navigate the world of dating and relationships. The characters experience successes, failures, and everything in between. And one of the messages in the show that is strongly implied but never stated outright is that romantic relationships are profoundly different for people with autism. Before there was love on the spectrum on Netflix, though, there was my guest, Amy Gravino. Hi, my name is Amy Gravino, and I'm a relationship coach in the Rucker Center for Adult Autism Services and an autism sexuality advocate and professional public speaker. Amy, you've spoken on the TED Talk stage where you've talked about a letter that you wrote to your younger self. How did that letter come about and how have people reacted? Sure, absolutely. So in 2008, I believe it was, I wrote a letter to my younger self. And it was at the behest of a mother who had uh, been reading my blog. And um, she sent me an email and she said that her nine-year-old daughter had just been diagnosed uh, with Asperger's syndrome. Then it was still Asperger's in the DSM before the new revision came out. Now it'll be autism level one. Um, and they didn't know any older girls or women on the spectrum. And she thought it would be a great way of giving advice to her daughter and to all the other young women, all the, all, all the parents as well of, of, of young kids on the spectrum. And, uh, I wound up taking it on the road and reading it at speaking engagements that I had back then. And it, one of the hardest crowds you can ever speak to is a group of 306th graders and 308th graders. And they came up to me afterward like I was a Beatle, like I was Paul McCartney. And they were just so over the, the letter reached them. And the thing about the letter I found over the years is that um, it reaches everybody in, in, in various audiences, you know, kids, adults, on the spectrum, neurotypical alike. There's just something about it that connects with people. For those who haven't yet read your letter, what did you write? The basic thing was just letting my younger self know that she had value and that she mattered and deserved to take up space in the world, which is something I had a very difficult time believing um, and really feeling deep inside. Um, I, I, thought, I saw myself as worthless. I mean, my self-esteem was pretty much non-existent because of the bullying I was experiencing. And either bullied or ignored. It was kind of a running contest as to which was worse. Um, and just feeling like I didn't know how I was going to live through all this because it seemed like life was going to be this way forever. Um, letting that little girl know that I haven't forgotten, like I, she's still a part of me. You know, it's the thing. And when I give my presentations and I <clears throat> talk about my experiences in elementary school, I'm reliving traumas that I experienced and I'm, I'm reliving what I felt when I experienced them. And it, it's very painful still. You know, I, I sometimes end up crying when I give these presentations. So that that's always going to be a part of me. Um, and I've been trying to heal that little girl for the past 25 years. And, uh, and the letter was a, a part of that, was a part of that catharsis, I think. So just like letting that young girl know that she was going to be okay. You know, when you're a kid, you look on at TV or movies and you see characters and people that are like you and that you can relate to. And there was no one that I really related to. There was no one that... Well, one of the few that I remember was Amelia Bedelia from the books, the Amelia Bedelia books. 
Like, you tell me she's not autistic, and I'm like, I could tell you that you're a liar because damn well she is. And and the other the other place where I saw people like me was the TV show Third Rock from the Sun, and it was the characters who were aliens. The way they responded to things, reacted to things. I was like, that's how I react to things. But but the, but they're aliens. So what does that say about me? And you know, just I just always had that feeling of, of thinking that I didn't belong. And so I wanted to let my younger self know that you you do belong. You'll find where you belong. It's going to take a while, but you'll get there. So hold on and don't give up. Since you were that little girl, the recipient of your own letter, you've published articles, spoken on the international stage, earned graduate degrees, and from an outsider's perspective anyway, you've really hit your stride, if I can say that. Have things changed for you? Oh, well, I mean, a lot of things have changed. You know, the funny thing is I always thought the world would have to change drastically for me to fit in. And the thing of it is, is that the world is kind of the same. I mean, there are definitely things that have changed. I think things are a lot easier now for autistic kids than they were when I was a kid in, in certain ways because of the level of awareness of autism that exists now that didn't when I was a child. But well, I, what, what has really changed is me. I'm, I've changed. I mean, at, at my core, I'm still me. I'm always going to be me. But I'm, I'm not the same person I was when I was 11, 9 years old, you know. Um, and it, it's been a gradual process of supplanting and replacing the voices in my head that were the voices of my peers and other people telling me that I was ugly and a psycho and a retard and worthless, replacing that with my own voice. So it took time to, to develop that, you know, as my confidence began to grow. Um, and, and again, the way my confidence grew, again, I wish I could say that it was a magic wand I waved, but that's, that's, you know, not how it works. It was definitely a gradual process. We often hear about people on the spectrum, especially women engaging in masking. And I, I'm a failed masker. I'm constitutionally incapable of being anyone other than myself. So I tried to do what my peers were doing and it never was right. It never looked right. Um, and it was so freeing to, you know, finally to be who I was, which I could not do all through elementary, middle and high school. I, I just couldn't. As a woman with autism, I imagine you're keenly aware of the schism between autism diagnoses for men or boys versus women or girls. What is that discrepancy like? And how would you describe the experience living in that gap, so to speak? Yeah, I think, well, the, you know, the original diagnostic criteria that were developed to diagnose autism were developed observing boys. That was who Hans Osberger was looking at, who Leo O'Connor was looking at. And so that, that, you know, that was decided that that was what the presentation of autism was, not having regard for how autism might present differently in girls and women, how it might present differently in, in people of color or people from other backgrounds, you know, any other background being white and male. Many women I know were not diagnosed until their 30s and 40s, even beyond. There are a lot of women on the spectrum out there, and I don't believe that the diagnostic ratio reflects how many there, there truly are. I think it's just a reflection of our ability to recognize it and categorize it. Imagine going through your life not knowing this important piece of information about yourself, about who you are. You know, that's, that's and, and you have all these questions, you know that you're different, and you don't know why. Um, that, that leaves scars on a person. That influences how a person sees themselves and sees their value and, and worth in, in the world. Amy Gravino, you've crafted this specialty in relationships, dating, and sexuality on the autism spectrum. 
Could you talk more about how that began? So that's a great question. Um, when I look back kind of at my life, there's a thread weaving through it that I see that kind of led me to, to where I am now. And um, it sort of began because, as you know, I mentioned how I was bullied in school and I wound up, you know, going to the Internet to, to be able to be myself and make friends and to be able to access my sexuality, which I didn't have an outlet for in the in the real world. And so I began reading erotic fiction at the age of 14, voraciously reading it and writing it as well as a way of, of again, accessing my sexuality and figuring you know things out. And and I wound up kind of becoming the designated smart writer for our little group of friends. You know, they'd say, write me a story with AJ. And I'd write something as far as my 15-year-old virginal imagination could stretch, which is pretty far, to be fair. I've always felt comfortable talking about sexuality. I never felt kind of a sense of shame or stigma, which I think many people on the spectrum, we don't naturally feel ashamed of things until we're told that we should feel ashamed, I think. And so it, it was never something I felt uncomfortable with and, and talking about. And um, when I started graduate school, I knew I wanted, you know, I, I have a master's degree in ABA, and I wanted to focus my work around adults on the spectrum because of that lack of supports and services that I just mentioned. And so for my thesis study, I, I designed a study to help two adults on a spectrum, two men diagnosed with autism level one, learn how to ask someone out on a date. In 2013, um, uh, that was when I began presenting with Peter Gerhardt on the subject of autism and sexuality. He had, he's been doing this for many, many years. And, you know, we, we did it and he did the clinical side and I did kind of the personal side and talked about my experiences with dating and relationships. Um, and then over you know the last nine years, I've developed my own presentation, um, and 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 the need has grown exponentially each year. Every, every year at every conference I presented at, there's more and more people in the room, to where it's like standing room only now practically, um, because people are suddenly realizing, oh crap, autistic kids become autistic adults. Like who knew that that's what happened? And you know, this this is something that has to be addressed. But I'm I'm happy to share, and you're the first one getting the news um, as a media outlet that. Uh, we applied for a grant, um, a $25,000 grant to create a curriculum, a sex ed curriculum for students on the spectrum. And we found out yesterday we, we, that we got the grant. Um, and it's my first grant as a principal investigator. So I'm very excited. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you so much. So let's talk about this sex ed curriculum for students on the autism spectrum. What can you tell us about what it's going to look like? The key feature of this curriculum uh, is that it's going to be a living document. It's going to be informed by the people that it's meant to serve. You know, we want, we're going to engage in collaboration with people on the spectrum in building it. So that's, you know, it, it's so important, I think, that that takes place because you, the last thing you want is, I'm not neurotypical, but you don't want a bunch of neurotypicals writing a sex ed curriculum for autistic people. Um, you, you, you know, you, you, that collaboration, I think, is, is essential. So research has shown that the vast majority of students with developmental and intellectual disabilities typically have no access to formal or informal sexuality education. Is that true in your experience? Yeah, yes, because for neurotypical students, uh, it's typically um, opt out. So it's assumed that neurotypical students are going to receive sex education. But for students on the spectrum, it's opt in. It's not assumed that an autistic student will receive sex education, and so parents have to choose for them to to get it. And not that many parents necessarily choose for their child to receive sex education or think that they may need it. And, it, and even if they do choose it, it's not consistent across the different states. 
you know, it, it's not even required to be medically accurate in every state in the country, which is insane. And some states have the abstinence-only curricula, which, you know, is not helpful in any realistic way. And so, um, you know, because I, I remember from my own experiences in health class, we learned about the basic stuff, biology and anatomy and things like that, pregnancy, STDs. But it's the social piece that is often very challenging for people on the spectrum. That's the, the piece that's really often missing in the life skills stuff. And so, and I think that, you know, very much in the same way that curb cuts wound up benefiting not just wheelchair users, but, but people, with strollers, people with mobility issues. If you had this life skills stuff in a sex ed curriculum, it would benefit everybody, autistic students and neurotypical students alike. So that's what I'd really love to ultimately see is that this be something that's embraced by the wider community because it would benefit everyone. Well, I'll be looking forward to hearing more as the curriculum develops. You mentioned the social side, too, of a sex education curriculum. And as a non-expert in that field, I'm curious, what does that entail and where do you start? I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the first thing, one of the building blocks, you know, is definitely um, bodily autonomy and, and setting of boundaries. That's something that is often very difficult for people to acknowledge when it comes to individuals on the spectrum because you know many people are like we have to you have to be here doing this when we need you doing that and that you know kind of sets the tone that somebody's personal boundaries don't matter that you can just touch somebody whether they want you to or not and that's really dangerous in the long run that's and then when they get into a relationship or dating situation um you know they may think well i don't really want to have sex with this guy but it doesn't matter what i want so i'll just have sex with him we have to, you know, no is a complete sentence, right? No is a complete sentence. And we are not great at, at acknowledging the no of, of folks on the spectrum, you know, and, and, and we, we, it's often attached to cultural norms as well. We take someone over to the grandparents' house. Okay, you know, kiss grandpa. I don't want to kiss grandpa. Too bad you got to kiss grandpa. And that is telling somebody, even if they're just five or six years old, that their boundaries don't matter. And they have to do what somebody in a position of authority tells them to do. Obviously, we don't want that in every situation. So it's a safety skill, if nothing else. And I, I think um, people tend to get freaked out when they hear the phrase sex education because they think that we're teaching autistic individuals how to have sex, and we're not. We're teaching autistic individuals how to live life. That's what this is about. And if you want to keep somebody safe, um, if, if that's what you ultimately want, then you will give them this information and you'll empower them to make the same choices as their neurotypical peers. Amy, for parents and caregivers of young people who are going through puberty and young adulthood and are maybe experiencing all of the new things that come with that transition, what advice do you have? Well, sometimes I think that a lot of the reluctance on the part of parents to address these issues is because they're concerned about not having the answers um, and thinking that they need to have an answer for absolutely everything and it has to be the perfect answer. I see the same reluctance with BCBAs and with, with the clinicians who work with individuals on the spectrum. And the fact is, is nobody has all the answers to this. We're learning things all the time about sexuality. We're, you know, that's why I don't even like the word expert. I, I, I don't use it because I don't think anybody's truly an expert in this area. I call myself a specialist, you know, but I'm, I'm, our knowledge of autism is changing all the time. Our, our knowledge of sexuality is changing all the time. And one of the kind of most powerful things that you could say to your child or your client is, I don't know. And, and I've said it before, I've, I've said, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but let's find out together. You know, it's, it, it's okay to not know something. And, and it, cause it lets, you know, so it lets people know like 
you know, no one has all the answers. We all have to find out a lot of this stuff together. And so I tell parents, like, don't be afraid of not knowing something. Um, it, you know, it's okay to, to, to not know. It's okay to need to look something up or to find out an, an answer to a difficult question. You know, and it's, it's a journey that everybody goes on. The, the autistic person is going on the journey, going through puberty and growing up and dealing with these things. And then the parent is, is on a journey as well, having never perhaps addressed some of these things before. But, you know, I offer consultations as well for families and individuals on the spectrum and organizations and schools and things. And so if parents ever have any questions, they can always reach out to me. You know, I do Zoom consults and I'm happy to help, you know, walk people through that and, and offer any advice I can. For neurodiverse people grappling with relationships and sexuality, coming full circle here to that letter you spoke about earlier to your younger self, what message would you want for them to hear? I would say, you know, you're more normal than you think you are. And you may look around and feel like everybody else, you know, is handling this so much better than you are that they've got themselves together and they're not falling apart the way you might feel like you're falling apart. And they're not. They're, they're as much of a mess as you are. They just maybe be, if they're neurotypical, they learned how to hide it better, how to deal with it better. They have sometimes an innate understanding of certain things that we as autistic people have to learn, you know, kind of manually. And, and don't be afraid to, you know, to make a mistake either that's 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 really the truest thing and i could sit here and and tell you all about what it's like to have a broken heart but the only way to learn how to handle having a broken heart is to have your heart broken it may hurt a hell a whole heck of a lot but it doesn't define who you are either the mistakes you make you know fit you know anytime you fail it doesn't mean that you're a failure it's just a part of the process it's a part of just going through life and you know you deserve to have the opportunity to do that as much as as anybody else, and you, you know, you have you have value as as who you are, and don't don't settle, you know, for somebody who's not going to see that value. You're, you're you're allowed to have standards. You're allowed to be picky, which I never knew I was either, um, and you're allowed to have a say in who you let into your world. You know, I think again, we as autistic people tend to think if someone pays any attention to us, we have to accept it and be all over it because maybe nobody else will want to be our friend or nobody else will be, want to be our boyfriend or girlfriend. And, and that's not true. Um, and, and as time goes on, you, you, you'll have to start to learn to differentiate between those types of attention. When someone's paying attention to you because they actually care about you and want to be with you versus when they're paying atten- attention to you because they want something from you. And that's a hard distinction to make, but they're, they're not the same. And you deserve someone who genuinely likes you and cares about you and respects you for who you are. What an empowering message. My guest today is Amy Gravino, speaker, author, and autism sexuality advocate. You can learn more about Amy and her work at amygravino.com. Thank you so much. It's been great to meet you, Amy. You too, John Andrew. You've been listening to the Autism Annex podcast, developed by Star Autism Support. I'm John Andrew Slominski. And as always, it's been my privilege to be your host today. Thanks, as always, to you listeners for tuning in and for subscribing to the Autism Annex podcast. If you like what you hear and haven't yet subscribed, please do so and consider leaving us a review. It really helps new listeners to find us. Until next time, my friends, take good care of yourself and one another.